Well, as most of you know, we have been following Paul on his second missionary journey for the last few weeks. Uh, although Paul began this journey with just his uh, partner Silas, uh, their mission, missionary team has grown as they've uh, progressed along. Uh, in Lystra, they picked up Timothy, uh, a young disciple that came to know and follow Christ uh, after, as a result of Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, and then uh, later on, they were joined by Dr. Luke in the, the city of Troas just before they entered into Macedonia. Uh, but then once they got to Philippi, their missionary team began to shrink again. Uh, uh, Dr. Luke stayed behind uh, in uh, Philippi, possibly to be uh, the, the pastor for that very newly planted church in that city. Uh, and now in the city of Berea, uh, troublemakers from Thessalonica came and kind of stirred up the city against Paul. Uh, and so the believers whisked him out of Berea and sent him down to Athens. Uh, but Silas and Timothy stayed behind, at least for a little while, uh, presumably just to help you know, teach and equip that church just a little bit more before they moved on. So now, in our passage today, we find Paul by himself in the city of Athens, waiting for Silas and Timothy to rejoin him. And we don't know exactly how long Paul was waiting there, uh, based on the, the distance from Berea and the travel times and all that sort of stuff, depending on whether he came by land or by ship or whatever he did. It was probably somewhere in the, the range between a, a week to a month, where we're not exactly sure. Could have been longer than that, we're not really told. Uh, but of course, Paul didn't spend all that time just sitting around waiting. In, in typical Paul fashion, uh, he continued preaching to both the Jews and the Gentiles, pointing them to Jesus Christ and urging them to turn to him for salvation. And of course, this is, this is exactly what we would expect from Paul, but it's how he does this that's of particular interest for us today. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. We're in Acts chapter 17 today, uh, but before we begin, we're going to pause here for a word of prayer and just ask God to teach us something new from his word this morning. Dear God, we thank you once again for this opportunity to be here uh, in this place. Thank you for uh, the, these friends, uh, this family of Christ that is gathered in this building to come and spend some time uh, just pausing from our busy week to stop and, and to make sure that our minds are centered on you. We thank you for the time of worship that we can have. We thank you for the time we can spend uh, together praying. And we thank you for this time in your word that we can look at, at the, the scriptures and, and we can see what you have to say to us uh, today and how we are to apply that in our lives as we go into this next week. So we pray that you would continue to speak to us. Uh, we pray that we would be receptive to the words of your Holy Spirit uh, as he gives us those nudges as we hear the word preached to us today. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. So as I said, our passage is in Acts chapter 17. We're going to start at verse 16 today. It says this, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. And I'm just going to pause right there for a minute. And I don't want to dwell on this for too long, but I thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, first of all, it's not surprising, I don't think, that Paul would be deeply troubled by all the idols that he saw throughout the city. Uh, as a Jew, uh, he was intimately familiar with the dangers of, of idol worship. Uh, Israel had a long history uh, struggling with idolatry, uh, right from you know the Mount Sinai and the Golden Calf when they first became a nation, all the way through the judges and the kings, until finally God had to deal so severely with them that they were nearly entirely wiped out and, and they spent decades in exile. You know, it was a, it was a long, hard road for the Israelites to, to to finally, you know, break free from the iron grip of idolatry. Um, however, throughout most of the rest of the, the Roman world, 
idols were everywhere. Uh, idols that supposedly, you know, kept away famine and disease and, and foreign invaders. Idols that promised prosperity and, and fertility if worshipped properly. You know, these idols could be found in, in temples, in, in all kinds of public spaces. And even most households would have their own household gods that would sit up on the shelf waiting for the, the daily sacrifice of food for them. Um, so it, it seems that almost all non-Jewish cities were, were chock full of these idols. And in Athens, it seems that they had taken things even to a, a greater extreme. In some of the, the literature of the day, they say that in Athens, there are more gods than men. And that's quite something, considering it was a, a city of about 30,000 people at that time. So right, uh, full of idols. And of course, uh, they had idols for, for everything and for every purpose, right? Every... Every situation had their own idol. And of course, this deeply troubled Paul as he walked through their city. You know, as Paul would later note, they were a very religious people, but for all their, their idols that they had, you know, their religion was worthless because they had missed out on the one true God. And so, like Paul, I think we too should be troubled by all the idols that we see around us. Now, of course, in our, our modern culture of Western civilization, we don't often see those, those carved images of monkeys and birds or whatever else might be the gods back then. But our world is filled with idols nonetheless. Uh, our, our idols just might look more like, like TV screens, perhaps, or, or dollar signs, or, or pickup trucks, or skidoos, or quads, or, or the opposite sex. Or There's just a whole host of idols that are worshipped by the people uh, around us. And again, I don't mean worshipped as in you know, bowing down and, and offering the little food, things like they did back then necessarily. But the people around us, they sacrifice huge amounts of time and effort and money to these idols in hopes that these idols will give them happiness, uh, peace, or security. However, the Bible is very clear that real happiness, peace, and security is not found in any of these things, any idol. It's only found through a right relationship with the one true God of heaven. Uh, Isaiah 45 says, All craftsmen who make idols will be humiliated. They will all be disgraced together. But the Lord will save the people of Israel with eternal salvation. Throughout everlasting ages, they will never again be humiliated and disgraced. For the Lord is God, and he created the heavens and the earth and put everything in place. He made the world to be lived in, not to be a, a place of empty chaos. I am the Lord, he says, and there is no other. Jumping down a little bit. What fools they are who carry around their wooden idols and pray to gods that cannot save. Consult together, argue your case, get together and decide what to say. Who made these things known so long ago? What idol ever told you they would happen? Was it not I, the Lord? For there is no other God but me. A righteous God and Savior, there is none but me. Let all the world look to me for salvation. For I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by my own name. I have spoken the truth, and I will never go back on my word. Every knee will bend to me, and every tongue will declare allegiance to me. The people will declare, The Lord is the source of all my righteousness and strength. And all who are angry with him will come to him and be ashamed. In the Lord, all the generations of Israel will be justified, and in him they will boast. I just thought that was a, that was a great passage. The, the scriptures are clear. Uh, salvation and eternal life is found only in the one true God of heaven. I don't know how many times in there God says, I am God and there is no other. 
And so like Paul, we should be deeply troubled at all the idols that we see around us. We should be troubled when we see people wasting their lives, chasing after things that, that cannot satisfy, things that don't last for eternity. You know, we should be deeply disturbed in our spirits, knowing that, that our friends and our, our family even, some of them are facing an eternity apart from, from God and all of his goodness. You know, we should be so troubled that we do something about it. You know, we need to tell them that there is one and only true, or one God and only him. Uh, and all of us will one day kneel before him and we will profess our allegiance to him. We need to point them to Jesus, the only source of eternal joy, true peace, and absolute security. And of course, this is what Paul was doing in Athens. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. As we've seen before, Paul begins his missionary effort by going to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. But of course, he didn't stop with that. It's, we also see that he went to the public square to talk with you know, anybody who happened to be there. And this is where Paul's visit to Athens kind of takes a little bit of a different turn than most of the other cities that he has visited. Um, in most cities, we've seen that Paul goes to the synagogue and he, and he opens up the scriptures and, and shares with his fellow Jews of, uh, about how the, the, the prophets had prophesied about the Messiah and how Jesus was the one that was talked about. And of course, this usually results in some Jews believing and some Jews being jealous and then causing such a, a, a bunch of trouble for Paul that he either has to, you know, he gets thrown in jail or he gets out of town. That's kind of been the, the pattern thus far. But we don't see that happening here in Athens. While the, Paul does spend sometime at the synagogues, reasoning with the Jews, the bulk of this story actually revolves around his interactions with the non-Jewish audience. Uh, he, he hangs out in the public square, it says, preaching about Jesus to anybody who would listen. In fact, it says in verse 18, he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. Kind of interesting city. But here it is. Now, Paul's got this, this wonderful opportunity uh, to, to speak about Jesus to all these philosophers and the, the city council and, and all the other people that happened to be there. And there's probably quite a few. Uh, and as this last verse tells us, you know, it was a favorite pastime for the people of Athens to spend all their time discussing all the latest ideas. And of course, with Paul talking about the resurrection of the dead, now that's a, that's a pretty new idea. Um, but of course, his presentation of the gospel to these, these Gentiles was going to have to be quite a bit different than his regular presentation to the Jews. You know, the Jews already, they, they were already convinced of the, the truthfulness uh, of the Old Testament scriptures. They already believed that Jehovah was the one true God. They already believed that God spoke through the prophets about the Messiah. And, and so really, Paul just had to show them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah that was talked about in, in the Old Testament. But for these Gentile believers, he, he just didn't have that, that firm foundation to begin with. He, he really had to start from scratch. And so these next few verses kind of summarize uh, Paul's gospel presentation to these folks who, who were very religious, 
but they really had no idea anything about the one true God. And so I think this can be quite helpful for us as well. You know, there's some good principles in here as we try to share about Jesus with the people around us, our, our neighbors, our co-workers, or whoever it is, because uh, I think many folks today are probably, you know, in a, in a very similar place as some of these ancient Athenians. Either they're, they're very religious people, or maybe they're not, but they really don't have any idea about who God really is and, and what God has done for them and what God wants them to do in response. So let's take a look to see how Paul puts this all together, starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. And I'll pause here. Now, first of all, notice that Paul is, is building this, this entire presentation specifically for the people of Athens, right? This is not a sermon that he could have just preached anywhere else because he's designing what he's saying based, uh, based on these people in this city, right? Paul spent some time getting to know these folks, right? He spent uh, every day, he was out in the public square talking with people. We know he's been walking around the city, seeing all these, these different idols. He's noticed this one altar that says to an unknown God. And, and so he's going to use all of this information, this understanding about these people and, and this city, and he's going to use that as his starting point, right? He uses this kind of like, here's, here's the common ground that he begins with. Because in effect, Paul is saying, hey, I noticed that you're very religious. I'm a little bit religious myself. And he says, oh, you've got this altar to an unknown God? I happen to know that unknown God, and I would love to tell you about him. So that's, that's kind of his approach here. And I think that's a, a good principle for us as we try to share about Christ with the people around us. You know, when there's two people coming from totally different places, it's pretty hard for them to end up in the same place, right? But if you can find a common ground with someone and, and move forward together, you know, it's so much easier to, to make progress that way. Um, and so as we, we speak with people, even though their understanding of God might be miles apart from our understanding of God, we need to ask, well, where's the, where's the common ground where we can begin, right? What, what beliefs do we have in common? What, uh, what common experiences have we had? Or even what common struggles do we have? That's actually a great one. Because when, when you share a common struggle, you're able to share, here, here's how Jesus has impacted me as I work through this struggle. It's a great starting point. Even Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 22, he says, when I am with those who are weak, I share their weaknesses, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. So if we can find that, that common ground with the people that we're sharing with, you know, not as a, you know, combating, fighting different ideas, but here's our common ground. How can we move forward together? Uh, I think that makes all, all the difference in the world. And so that's kind of the first thing that I noticed out of this passage. Identify your common ground. The second thing that I noticed is that even though Paul was deeply troubled by all the idols that he saw in the city, he doesn't immediately condemn them for their idolatry or point out how foolish it is for them to worship this God that they don't even know. Now, certainly later on, Paul will quite clearly point out the, the falsity uh, of idols and, and the sin of idolatry. But even when he does that, it's, it's not really in a, in a spirit of condemnation, but really a, it's an earnest warning for them, pleading with them to repent and turn to God. And, and I think there's a, an important principle in that as well. You know, we're never instructed to condemn anyone, but rather we are to speak the truth in love. 
Now, that does not mean that we should avoid saying hard things or, or skirt around the issues of sin, right? We're not to turn a blind eye to someone's sin just because, you know, it might offend them. Uh, that's not what we're saying at all. You know, we need to speak the truth in love, but we need to do that with as much love and grace as we possibly can. I think the story of, of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well is just a, a wonderful example of this. You know, even though Jesus knew full well that that woman had had five husbands before, and even the husband that she was, or the man that she was with now wasn't even her husband, he knew all that. But yet, we see that that was not the, the first topic that comes up in their conversation. Far from it. And even when it does come up, you know, Jesus doesn't, you know, bring it out as a point of condemnation. He kind of just acknowledges the truth of it. And I think that's maybe because people don't often need to be told that they're sinners. I think most people have a pretty good understanding of that. Besides, according to, to John 16, 9, it's kind of the Holy Spirit's job to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. But what people do need to be told and what we need to tell them is that there is a Savior who loves sinners and in fact died for them so that they can be forgiven. And again, I want to stress that I am not suggesting that we minimize sin or ignore the, the reality of sin in people's lives. But when we're sharing the gospel with unbelievers, our approach needs to be more than just truth. It needs to be truth with a whole lot of grace as well. Uh, Colossians 4, 6 sums it up nicely. It says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And, and I think that's what Paul was doing in Athens. He, he certainly spoke the truth, but his conversation was full of grace. So having identified that common ground with his listeners and, and speaking the truth in love with, with thoughtful and, and gracious words, Paul continues speaking to the crowd. He says, one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations through the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Basically, Paul is explaining who God really is and what God is really like in contrast to the, the many so-called gods of the Romans, of the Athenians, you know, where their gods lived in temples and, and demanded that people you know, take care of all of their needs. The God of heaven has no needs. In fact, all life and breath comes from him. He is the one who ultimately satisfies every need. And then Paul goes on to explain that God's purpose and his desire for everyone is that they find and know him. All right, not that God is, is hidden from us, but sometimes we're just oblivious to his presence. Isn't that the truth? And so now, having established who God is and what God is like, Paul then prepares to kind of make his main point, And he continues in verse 29. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. 
Now, it's at this point that I am sure that Paul intended to, to launch into a more you know, detailed explanation of, of who Jesus was and what Jesus had done uh, for them on the cross. Uh, now that the people knew who God was and uh, that they shouldn't think of God as just another idol, Paul tells them there's a time of judgment coming, and so you need to repent and turn to God. But then, just as he kind of gets into the, 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 the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we read this in verse 32. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. So that ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. It became quite apparent to Paul quickly that most of the people listening to him were not actually interested in hearing the truth. Right? They, they love discussing all the latest ideas, you know, the, the religion, the philosophy, the, the poetry. But their hearts and minds were closed to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so, naturally, that kind of ended Paul's discussion with them. If he couldn't talk about Jesus, well, Paul didn't have much else to say. Uh, and so that ended their discussion. We don't hear any further public discourse from Paul in that city. However, there were a few people who were prepared to hear and accept the message of Jesus Christ. And in the end, they gave their lives to Christ and they became believers. And, and that brings out the, the last point that I want to mention today. All those people heard the exact same message, but only a few of them were actually ready to listen and accept the saving message of Jesus Christ. And, and that's a reality that we're all going to face as we share the message of Jesus Christ with the people around us. The, the reality is that the majority of the people that we share with will not listen, right? They just won't be ready to hear and accept the truth. But some will. And that's the exciting part. There are people out there right now who are ready to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're ready for someone like you to tell them about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them, what Jesus has done for you, so that they can be saved. They're ready right now to have their lives totally transformed by Jesus Christ, and you could be a part of that. So I want you not to get discouraged when you share about Christ with somebody and they choose not to listen because, you know, that's, that's typically what's going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean that, that you're a failure or, or that there was something lacking in your message, but rather, chances are they just weren't ready to listen. So don't give up sharing the gospel with people just because, you know, you receive repeated rejections. It's nothing wrong with you or the message. Uh, there are people out there who are ready and, and willing to hear what you have to say. And so I would just encourage you this morning. You know, even, even Jesus had people, many people, walk away from him unbelieving. So don't stop sharing the gospel message just because people don't listen. I would encourage you to keep speaking the truth in love. You know, find that common ground with people and share honestly and graciously with them about who Jesus is and what he's done for them and what he's done for you. And don't get discouraged when people don't listen because somewhere along the line, someone will. And for that person, your willingness to share the gospel with them will have made all the difference. So let's continue to be a, a faithful witness of Jesus Christ wherever we go and with ever, whomever we speak with in hopes that through the grace of God, more and more people will actually get a chance to hear and know the God of heaven. So with that, I'm going to pray and I'm going to send you off into the week to, to do that very thing. So let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for this uh, 
this message from Paul recorded for us in the scriptures. And there's a, a ton, lot more that we could talk about in here, many different truths that we could bring out and apply to our lives. But here's a little thing that maybe we can grasp today, God. We thank you that your word is truth, that your gospel has the power to save and totally transform lives. And I pray that we would not forget that, even when we go through you know, many, many times uh, of sharing with people and having them you know, not listen, have them reject what we have to say, maybe even, even persecute us in, in some way. Um, but God, I pray that we would not give up, that we would faithfully share your word, that we'd be your witness, so that when that time comes, when someone is ready to listen, we would be there to faithfully share the word of God with them so that you can do your life-transforming work through them. God, we thank you that you use us, us broken vessels that are so weak and frail, but God, yet you delight to use us to share your word, your truth with the people around us. I pray that we would be faithful. May we not become discouraged, but may we go out into our, our work week, uh, our school week, or whatever week we have, and, and may we be willing to keep sharing the gospel, uh, the good news of Jesus Christ with the people around us. Thanks so much for your love for them and for us as well. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen.